This is The Secret Life of Writers, a new interview series from inside the literary world. My name is Gemma Birrell, and I'll be speaking with some of the world's most interesting and visionary writers and creative icons about what they're working on now and how they balance life and art. Today I'm speaking with one of Australia's great writers, Nikki Gemmell. Since Les Murray printed Nikki's first story in Quadrant magazine, she's written 13 novels. One of them, of course, was the erotic blockbuster The Bride Stripped Bear, which was published anonymously back in 2003. It was described as a raw and unflinching look at sexuality, and it's that raw and unflinching eye that makes her writing as a whole so engaging. Nikki's books have been translated into 22 languages, and in France, she's been described rather fabulously as a female Jack Kerouac. Nikki also writes books for children, is a columnist for the Weekend Australian magazine, and she's published various non-fiction books musing about life, love and death. In all of her work, there's a sort of sinewy energy that bristles on the page, and her fine observations and sensual descriptions are a joy to read. Her book After has the feel of a literary detective story as Nikki investigates her mother's death, though at the heart it's a celebration of her life and their relationship in all of its wondrous complexity. Her new novel that's just come out is called The Ripping Tree. It's a poetic thriller that's vividly imagined and confronting, a particularly Australian story set in the time of white settlement. I fell straight away for the main character, Poss, with her irrepressible conviction, and Nikki's so good at creating a sense of foreboding in this story that has a gothic feel to my mind, bringing us head-on with Australia's brutal history. Nikki, hello. It's so good to be speaking with you today. Hello, Gemma. Thank you so much, and thank you for that lovely introduction. Can you set the scene for us and describe where you're speaking from? Well, I'm speaking from the room of my own that I have finally managed to get after three decades of writing. That's because my two elders have flown the coop and gone off to university. So we've all shuffled around bedrooms and I can finally set up my own space, you know, after decades of writing in Starbucks and on on the <laughs> steering wheel of cars with my kids doing soccer practice and all the rest of it. So it feels fantastic to be here. But actually at the moment, I'm sitting on the floor under a blanket because <laughs> I used to be a radio person and I know that to get the best sound quality for you, <laughs> I need to kind of replicate a little studio setup. So that's what I'm doing at the moment. <laughs> now, talk about your writing desk. Do you have objects or images that help inspire your writing? I do. I do all the time. I'm a real, I'm kind of like a bowerbird. I'm a big collector. I've lived in many places over the world and a lot of them find their way onto my desk. So they're all here, including um, a capstan old cigarette tin that's still contains my favourite oh. pens and ink cartridges. I picked that up on a road trip going through Broken Hill when I was driving from Sydney to Alice Springs in my old ute, you know, back in my 20s. That road trip became the basis of my second novel, Cleave. So there's basically a lot of history on this desk. Now, when we emailed yesterday, you said you were looking forward to talking about being an expat, which is something we both yes. share. So to contextualise your history for everyone listening, you lived in London for almost 15 years. And how long have you been back in Sydney now? A decade. Oh, a decade. So what are the things about London and the style of living there that you really miss? I miss the feeling that I was in the centre of the world creatively. It was raw and it was messy and it was hard work because to be in London, you need to have a lot of money. But it was so stimulating. When we first lived there, we lived in a bedsit just off Fleet Street, my husband and I, and he was doing night shifts at the Labor Party then. I was doing night shifts at the World Service. We had this mad life. He gave me for my birthday one year a subscription to the London Library and, and I'd never heard of it and I went along to it and it was this deeply eccentric library, this institution in St James Square that had been set up by Dickens in I think 1848 and it was full oh. of writers. And so I sat there at my little desk 
bashing out one of my novels and gradually I came to know all these writers around me and they're still great mates, the London Library crowd. And I just love that idea of we were all in this together. We were all writers together. We all envied the screenwriters because they made so much money compared to the rest (laughs) of us. None of us wanted to be poets because that would have been the hardest slog. But it was a joy. And I just felt like there were just creative energies everywhere around me. And also I love the Aussie expat scene over there. And it wasn't just writers. It was filmmakers. It was actors. It was visual artists in so many different endeavours. We all supported each other. We all celebrated each other. We were also chuffed to be Aussies with that different kind of energy in London, in England, and with all those titans that had gone before us, you know, the Jermaine Greers and the Clive Jameses and the Robert Hughes and all of them. We felt like, you know, we were just treading on their coattails if we possibly could. It was an exhilarating feeling. Well, I ended up having three kids there. And as parents became older, the homesickness, just I needed the Australian light in my bones. I needed the land again. And I needed to go mm-hmm. home for my parents too so that they could see their grandkids. So in the end, it just became just too much of a slog to sustain it. Did you feel that your creativity was different overseas? Like you were talking about the freedom over there and the intensity of it. Did you work in a different way? I did work in a different way because I felt in a very dynamic, creative scene, you know, my agent was a Londoner, still is a Londoner. It pushed me on to be very, very productive. Everyone around me was, you know, churning out their books. I'd always be going to um, book launch in Hatchards. It was like, oh my God, everyone's so prolific and it's invigorating and it keeps you going. And since I've Mm. come back to Australia, I do work in a different way, but I must admit that's my life circumstances too. That's motherhood kind of eating away at any time I've got all the time. But I must admit also, and maybe it's an age thing too, it's just a kind of dwelling in stillness in the land in a way, just savouring the Australian land. I've always fiercely loved it, but now after those frenetic energetic, dynamic, competitive London years, I'm stiller and I'm quieter and I'm kind of looser with my ambition and what I want to do. So it feels like almost a necessary process of ageing. I'm stepping back in wonder almost and just kind of Mm -hmm. immersing myself in the beauty of what's around me, which I didn't have for almost 15 years in London. I never reacted emotionally in the same way to the English land and landscape as what I do to the Australian one. What about the sense of home? Is there an element because your heart's in two places, which is what I find a little bit, that you're not 100% at home in any because you do have various homes in a sense and various very close friendships that you're so far apart from in those different worlds. Yes, Gemma, look, I feel that exactly. I feel like the curse of the expat is that we're eternally restless and the Mm. grass is always greener and, you know, we're never satisfied. (laughs) My husband in particular Mm. would go back to London in a heartbeat. He'd go back tomorrow if he could. And we have discussed it actually, you know, do we spend the twilight of our lives over in Blighty? My sense is I don't want to die over there. I don't want to be buried in that cold English soil. I want to be Mm. here in the final years. But we are restless. We would love to do one more stint in London. We miss our friends terribly, but it is the right decision to be here. You know, since we've been back in those 10 years, I've lost both my parents and my husband's lost his father. We're grateful that we got solid time with all of them, and they got time with their grandkids before they passed away. That's a real gift. We were saying if we were over there during COVID, and well, my dad died late last year, I wouldn't have been able to get back to him in time. And I think that would have stained my life. So I am happy I'm back here. 
but we are perpetually restless. And the dream for me was always, when I was very, very young in my mid-20s, I lived in Alice Springs in this house that Robin Davidson, the camel lady, the tracks lady, she owned. And for me, she had the perfect life. She had the house in Alice Springs and she had a flat in London and she chased the sun. So six months over there, six months here, every year. And I just thought, wow, that's it. That's what I aspire to. I really think that's the perfect combination, isn't it? Just having those kind of different elements and living in those different places would be perfection. But again, I don't know. It's it's interesting, isn't it? Because there is always that urge to have the roots in the ground, to set those yes. roots in. But just I, when you were talking about that and, you know, the absolute joy of returning to Australia and the necessity as well, it made me think of this section on quiet, which is your short meditative book that we'll discuss a bit later in our conversation. But I wondered if you could read it. It's page 77. It's just so lovely, that passage. My oldest childhood memories have the flavour of the earth, wrote Lorca, a Spanish poet and dramatist. Don't we all have recollections of childhoods marinated in nature? Mine. Tadpoles in jam jars, red-bellied black snakes in gutters, my brother's red-back spider farm in ice cream containers in the carport, peeling paper barks off trees, the dry flick of grasshoppers through tall grass, the summer shrill of cicadas rising and falling and then dropping into a silence as crisp as an orchestra. It was an expansive childhood of wonder and freedom, rambling and daydreaming. Thanks, Nikki. It's a real gift giving that to your children as well, isn't it? It is. And and what I didn't mention in all this expat talk about, you know, returning home and whether to or not, children were the big factor here. Uh, we wanted to give them that Australian childhood, which is a childhood like no other. And frankly, I just think it's the best childhood. That's a perfect way of entering into our next topic of conversation, which I'm very excited to start talking about. And that's your new book, The Ripping Tree. As I was saying before we started recording, I devoured it. And yeah, a huge congratulations. It's so compelling. I called it a poetic thriller in my <laughs> intro, which was a bit of a made-up term, but Can it felt right. Can I steal right. that? <laughs> <laughs> Please. How would you describe it yourself? It's really hard, Gemma, and I feel like I'm hopeless at the selling bit of books. It's like I look at <laughs> Elena Ferranti and I think, wow, she had the perfect solution to all of this. She just writes and then she disappears from the process. She doesn't have to explain. She doesn't have to have her heart in the, her mouth as the books are published, all that kind of stuff. For me, and I say this to my publishers, you write the blurb, you explain what it is. I don't know what it is. And particularly with The Ripping Tree, I feel like how I did with my book, The Bride Strip Bear. It's finished. I don't know what I've done. I don't know if it's worked. I don't know what is before me. I mean, I guess it's a psychological thriller. It's historical fiction, which is something I've never done before. It's a page turner. I very much wanted that kind of sense as I was writing it. I must admit, as I was doing it, it's taken about 10 years. Um, my teenage boys were bringing home their high school texts and I was just picking up these books that I hadn't read for years, books like Heart of Darkness and The Turn of the Screw and rereading them and that sense of kind of bullet through a story with increasing dread, mm. those glorious 19th century, quite short novels. It was like, uh, I just love the kind of dynamism and sense of propulsion to them. Also, the incredibly strong sense of narrative. You have to find out what happens next. So, all those things were swirling around in my head as I was writing this one. Tell us the story behind the novel and where it came from. Well, it really, it stems back to my days when I was feeling incredibly homesick as an expat about 10 years ago. And I tripped into my London agent's office, David Godwin, this gorgeous guy who's He's so much eminently teasable, very funny. Um, and I just said, you know, I want to go home, Godwin. And he said, oh, good riddance, Gemmel. You've been saying this for years. Just go. And then he said, <laughs> Go, because I'd written quite a few very Brit-centric novels, ones really, really set in London. So I hadn't written about Australia, my homeland, for many, many, many years. And he just said to me, 
just go and write your big Australian novel. Just go and write about Australia this time. You're so homesick about it. You go on and on about it. And I said, all right, I will. So I did. So I came home with the bones of an idea. I must admit I came home with outsider eyes because I'd lived in London for almost 15 years. And so when I did come home to live in Australia in 2011, I was seeing it as a Brit. And for years they'd been telling me, you know, oh, it's Australia's ugly or Australia's all spiky and all the, all the, all the leaves are all spiky spiky and and your trees are really weird and spindly and they're a weird colour. They're not like the English green. So suddenly when I came back to live here and immerse myself in the land, I knew what they were on about. And I thought, I really want to write about a stranger in a strange land. And all through this was um, going back again to high school days when I read Twelfth Night. I was fascinated by Viola, a stranger in a strange land, a young woman who's washed up on a strange island and who dresses as a boy and kind of creates a new life for herself. And I was fascinated by that idea. So I I kind of, through Viola, had the idea of a protagonist. And then my little daughter, who was like, she was three or four when she came to Australia. She'd never really seen it, didn't really know it. We were walking through Sydney one day and passing these well, to her, very strange, awkward, odd trees that she didn't really know about. And she said, look, mummy, look at the ripping tree. And I thought, that is a gift of a title for a novelist. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I said, the ripping tree. And oh, wow, can I have that? And, you know, she did have the presence of mind. She must have been four. And she said, yeah, if you pay me. She's still like that. Yeah, if you pay me. So so, lo and behold, um, I had the title, the ripping tree. What she was talking about was a paperback you know, where you can rip off the long kind of tongues of bark. And as soon as she said the ripping tree, I thought that is a wonderful metaphor in terms of a tree that has layers and layers and layers and a center that you never quite get to. And you're constantly peeling away the layers to see what's underneath. And so I thought, yeah, that's a great title. So basically I had my, an idea of my protagonist. I had my title very, very strongly, which doesn't always happen with my books, but no one was going to sway me from this one. And I had the idea that I wanted to write about Australia in some way. So that's the ingredients were brewed initially into the ripping tree. Now, you must have done a lot of research for it as well, Nikki, because it is set in that particular early colonial period. Yes. And once again, I'm like a magpie. And, you know, here I was talking about in London, my boys didn't get any sense of Australian history at all. So as soon as they hit high school, in their wonderful school, they did Indigenous history and they were bringing home the most extraordinary oral accounts of Indigenous history. And I was just lapping these up and kind of delving deeper and thinking, I had no idea about all of this. I find this so shocking. And I've been away for 15 years and I know the history wars have all gone on and all of that. And I've kind of been in on the periphery of all of that. But because I had been immersed in London for so long, I didn't know to what extent all these things were common knowledge. And I kind of asked around to people like my dad, you know, old-timer Aussies, and they certainly had no idea either. And I thought, I want to write about this. I, I want people like my dad to understand or just get a sense of what actually went on here. So I was researching the Indigenous history and later as the book was being finished, I was having a to and fro, a wonderfully productive and interesting to and fro with an Indigenous professor at the University of Newcastle, John Maynard, who gave me 
a very thorough sensitivity read. So that was another layer of diving into other worlds, which I, I found so rewarding. But I was also diving into our convict past. So I did a lot of reading there and I did a lot of travel to convict areas in the northwest of Tasmania and up to Port Macquarie and places like St Albans, you know, which is secret river country. And all this was done, you know, throughout raising four kids and throughout a decade of other books and other things going on. But yes, I I did immerse myself in a lot of research. And it's so hard to read at times. Like our history is a brutal, dark, horrific history. And the details and what you include and what you weave into the, the story some of it's really disturbing, which is the point too, isn't it? I'm so glad you say that because, yes, I didn't want to shy away from it. And there are some very disturbing details in there. And at one point, one of my editors said, oh, look, I think we should just take this out. And I was like, but there are oral histories of this happening. This, yeah. We need to confront this as a nation. And I feel like this is one of our problems. Mm. It's too hard. It's too traumatic. So we don't want to know about it for so many of us. It's like, don't, don't tell me about this. I don't want to know. Like someone said to me once that be careful when you write about Indigenous stuff, because this is some newspaper person, because people just turn off. They're not interested. You know, you won't get any clicks for that kind of thing. And it's like, that is not going to stop me writing, you know, with my nonfiction, with my columns, whatever about Indigenous issues because, for me, my passion is fairness. And in a way, it's my protagonist's passion too in The Ripping Tree. She's passionate about fairness and she comes into this world as a stranger in a strange land and she just thinks, this is unfair, this is awful, something needs to be said. And for so many people, nothing is said. So that's why I wanted to include all the really, really hard, brutal stuff. And I will say that, you know, the Indigenous professor himself, John Maynard, did not have a problem with it at all. I cannot speak for him in any way, but he wanted it there. He wanted it in there. And it's fiction, but this is part of our history. And people do need to know about it. Not everyone knows about this. And it is their details. I mean, we're not mentioning obviously what it is. It's part of the fabric of the book and you will read it. And it is, I guess we're discussing overall the difficulty of Australian history, of Australian white history and how the way the whites were towards Aboriginal people at the time. And, you know, it's funny because I was looking on your website and in one of your descriptions about a different book, actually, you used a quote by Edna O'Brien, which is so relevant to this, which was, books should make a disturbance. A writer must try to open doors and walls and cracks that are dangerous to open. And I think you did that with this book. Yes, thank you. That's really what I want to do in a way. And it was the same feeling that I had with Bridestrip Bear. It was like, I just want to bring things into the light, unspoken things, perhaps. And with this book, I wanted to do it in the context of a ripping read in a way that, you know, just a regular reader who perhaps is interested in historical fiction or just likes a good yarn, like my dad. I like the idea of people like that picking up this book and just reading it for its story and then maybe learning something from it too, you know, a fresh perspective about Australia, which would make them understand the guilt at the heart of so much of what we do or don't do in terms of Indigenous Australia and the deep, deep trauma that Indigenous Australians still go through. You touched on the main character of Poss, who is so well drawn and the truths that she tells is such a relief as well against the secrecy and the darkness in the book elsewhere. So in a way, it's also a story of a woman who refuses to be silenced by the men around her, isn't it? Yes. I had to be careful not to make her too modern, particularly in this context. But I I guess what I was thinking of was those wonderful childhood Aussie heroines that I grew up with, Juju in Seven Little Australians. I still get all teary thinking of Juju. Sibylla in My Brilliant Career, those strong, tough, blunt, honest, impetuous, clumsy, super smart young Australian women going basically, hang on, I don't want to be what I'm expected to be. This isn't right. 
they feel very modern to me, even though they were written, you know, at the end of the 19th century. I loved their spirit and the thought of having those women, their spirit broken is heartbreaking. And so that's Mm. why I wanted write a character like that. I, I fell in love with my posse. I just loved her headstrong stubbornness and almost stupidity that she won't play the game and it gets her into a lot of trouble. But there's something mm. very lovable about that too. As we all, or those of us old enough to remember, we all fell in love with Judy, Juju in Seven Little Australians. She was the same kind of thing. And she's still a child, isn't she? She's on the cusp. She's not quite an adult. So she has that innocence and that truth and that conviction, which is really heartwarming as well, I think. Yes, exactly. She's 16. And, you know, Edith Wharton, she described young women as growing up and having a curtain of niceness kind of drawn around them. And it's true, you know, as young women, we're taught to be quiet and meek and nice and to kind of dampen ourselves down. I wanted to catch a young woman before that process has actually happened to her because I think it's strong and vivid, it's exciting. I love it and I want to nurture it in the young women I see. It breaks my heart when I see a loss of confidence creep in. In terms of this book, as we've discussed, the landscape is so evocative. What does the natural world here in Australia do to you? Tell me a bit about those places where you felt most centred in yourself. The bush is my medicine. And I think that stems back to my childhood. I grew up in Wollongong on the foothills of Mount Kira, which is this magnificent mountain to the west of the city of Wollongong. The bush was my backyard. And so I was very used to playing in it, very comfortable in it, very comfortable seeing funnel-web spiders in the swimming pool and red-bellied black snakes in the gutter outside our house. It didn't scare me at all. And it was only when I got to England that I got a sense that, wow, England in terms of its landscape, its natural world is very benign. And should I be scared of the Australian bush? But I'm not at all. And um, (laughs) now that I'm back, I just try and immerse myself in it all the time. I'm very lucky I live opposite a national park so I can wander the bush and I do whenever I can. I also love, I think this is a process of ageing too, the great circularity of life. I love returning to where I grew up, the Illawarra Wollongong, the Illawarra Escarpment. It just sings to me. It sings to my blood and my bones. There's something about it. I feel like I'm home when I'm there. So I wouldn't be surprised if in my later years I I end up somewhere down there. I just feel like the older I get, the closer I want to be to this land and this bush. I love your description in Quietitude as, well, in Quiet, on Quiet, the book on Quiet, and you describe Quietitude as the extravagant surrender into who you want to be, which was a lovely way of putting it, really. And in that book, you also talk about other places that have really had a kind of deep impact on you. And one of them, as you mentioned before, was the desert, which is a huge contrast. And I imagine that would do something quite different when you're in that landscape. Yes, I just recently went back to where I lived for many years in my 20s, and that was Alice Springs. So only a couple of weeks ago, I was there. And it did it to me all over again. It's the hum of the silence. There's a great spirituality to that land. It's powerful. It's strong. That place, it's a fierce little town, but that land is a place of repair for me. I had a catastrophic breakup with someone in my 20s and all I wanted to do at that time was go back to Alice Springs, to Central Australia, to the desert and repair myself. And now 30 years later I've gone back and I still feel that sense of repair I came back from my little trip quietened. It was just very balming to be out there again. Now, in 2017, you published the book After, and I found this book so incredibly moving and it made me tear up in many places. And it's a book about the stuff of life, which is partly death and family and relationships, and you also explore euthanasia. But at its core, it felt like a love letter to your mother. It's really essential reading for all of us, I think. What did you get from writing this book personally? Well, basically my mother suicided and the police came to me an hour after her body was found and 
basically were asking me what I knew of her circumstances. She overdosed with an opioid, OxyContin. In the early stages, the police wanted to know if I had supplied the Oxy to her in quantities. And it was the most extraordinary thing to be thrust into. I had never heard of OxyContin before the police said to me, did you give it to her? Because you're not meant to have it in such vast quantities. I felt like I was in the middle of a detective story. I'd never been thrown into a situation like this before. My mother left no suicide note. The whole family was reeling as to what we'd missed. It broke us. It's still breaking us, some of us, in many ways. But I wrote after my book about this time in my life, almost as a detective story, I was trying to understand. I was trying to understand her motivations. I was trying to understand opioid addiction, chronic pain, the whole rabbit hole of euthanasia. Mum was deeply invested in Philip Nitschke and his world. She was talking to him on the telephone. I had no idea of the extent of her passion for all of this. But it was also, yes, as you said, a love story to a magnificently complex woman. I wanted to celebrate this complicated woman. She was deeply flawed, but aren't we all? You know, we can't judge in a way because... We've all got our faults, all of that. So I just wanted to, through this book, say to mum, really, I love you and thank you so much because I don't think I'd expressed gratitude enough during her life. I had never said thank you, mum. Thank you, mummy, for making me the woman that I am because it was you, it was your influence all the way through that shaped me and shaped me magnificently. And I'm so grateful for that. But I never, I never said it to her when she was alive. And I think she was craving some kind of recognition from me of her bit in it. And I didn't. And then it was too late. You write about the complexity between both of you really well. There's a lot of generosity on your part because the relationship was difficult. It's so special the way you're able to rise above all of that difficulty and see the magnificence of this woman and the love that was at the core because some of that other stuff was hard reading, you know, the bits where she was mean at times, you know, but that's life, as you say. Sometimes people are not perfect. People are difficult. Relationships are difficult. Yes, but I was also writing this in hindsight And I think that, you know, when she died, it threw everything into perspective. And all those silences, all that piracy of silence that we'd gone through, all the withholding of love, it was all like, oh, it didn't matter. You know, none of it mattered in the grand scheme of things. We should have just got on with it. Just, you know, because we didn't know how little time left we had with each other. We should have just, uh, and I felt it again with my dad who died just a couple of months ago. It knocked me for six in a different way. But the milk bar owner, our local milk bar owner who adored him too, when he was sick in hospital with his cancer towards the end, she just said to me, Nikki, go and ask him a thousand questions. Go and ask him what's his favourite film, his favourite song, his favourite book, in colour, everything, everything. And you know what? I never did. I He suddenly went downhill so fast, I did not have time to ask him all those questions. And that's a real regret now too. So <laughs> it is what it is. People are the keepers of so many stories and family histories. My father passed away recently oh. as well. And there's just the thought of, in addition to the loss, of course, the thought of all of that knowledge about where we come from and who we are and the connections between other people in in our families. It's a loss in addition to the person, but also the history that you share with someone. Exactly. So I would just urge anyone who's still got that blessing of their parents alive, just go for it. Just be with them as much as you can. Ask them those thousand questions, you know, draw out those family histories that you know nothing about, which is what in a way the ripping tree is about. It's family of secrets and it's unraveling all those secrets and the murkiness and whatever. 
Now, this is a bit of a back-the-front interview, but I do want to have a look at the start of your career as well because there's a lot of new writers out there and I think it's fascinating for people to hear how everything came together. Can we go back to the start and can you tell us when you thought you might become a writer? <laughs> well, it didn't happen for many, many years. I was desperate to be a writer or during my um, high school years and into my university years. And I had an apprenticeship, a long apprenticeship with short stories. So I was writing short stories from my late teens onwards. And my philosophy was always saturation bombardment. I don't know how it works these days, but back in those days, <laughs> you know, 30 odd years ago or more, 35 years ago, uh, you were meant to send off your carefully crafted short story, which would sometimes take me over a year to complete. I'd send it off to a literary magazine and then you were meant to just wait until you got the rejection and and then send it off to the next one. And I thought, oh, stuff that. I'm going to send it to everyone. So I did. I remember there were about 10 literary mags on my list, Southerly, Westerly, Overland, Quadrant, or, you know, all the biggies, Mianjin, all the biggies. So I would send, you know, 10 copies of my short story that was written up on my Anstrad computer and to see if someone somewhere would have a nibble, would take a bite, because I really do think writing is all about confidence. And, you know, you just need someone to give you that gift of confidence to help you to keep on going. And lo and behold, Les Murray picked up one of my books. Not a bad person to give I you know. confidence. <laughs> and what a generous soul. I often find those who are you know, much more secure in their careers are the most generous and the most gracious. So he sent me the most, it was called Three Men, the story. He sent me this most beautiful little acceptance card and he ended it with, if you've made this up, you're a genius. And I thought, yeah, well, of course I'm not a genius because I haven't made it up. It's nonfiction. So what I'd done was it was a short story taking in my father, my grandfather and my great-grandfather and their history of coal mine. So it was, you know, my great-grandfather had pit ponies when he was down the mines. My father ended up with highways under the earth. So the changes in coal mining over those three generations. So that set me on my path. And then, you know, I was averaging maybe one or two short stories a year being published in various literary magazines. That was fuel for my confidence to make me think, maybe I can actually do this. And I always thought, I want to have a novel published by the time I'm 30. And Les had said to me at one stage, you know, Nikki, so many people don't have something to write about. You have to have the gift of a story. And for Mm. me, that gift came in, I think I was about 27. I was um, a newsreader for Triple J of all things. And they sent me down to Antarctica and I broke the rules of Antarctica. Um, We were on a resupply ship, resupplying the Australian bases of Davis and Mawson. And I fell in love with someone. I fell in love with an historical architect called Martin Davis, passionately in love. And it was all secret because you just weren't meant to do that on on the Aurora Australis, which is the resupply ship. Fell in love with him. And then I came back to resume my work at Triple J and he stayed down there and he was killed. I feel like I've had such a tumultuous life. Mm. So he died down there. In uh, He was climbing a mountain at sunset. He was a rock climber back in Australia. And he wanted to read his book, Calvino's If on a Winter's Night a Traveller, which is probably why oh. I fell in love with him. He was that kind of bloke. One of the best books ever I written. know. So he wanted mm. to read that watching the Antarctic sunset and he fell. He fell several hundred metres um, and his best friend found him. So mm. suddenly I had the gift of a story that Les had been talking about and that became my first novel, Shiver. And I wrote that in a great rush and I poured my heart and my soul into it and I sent it off to a Sydney literary agent and she rejected it. Oh, really? She um, broke my heart but she also broke my dream because I thought, oh, so if an agent is not going to take this, no one is. That's it. 
I'm not cut out for this because, you know, I was working full time at the ABC then. And it was like, okay, my path is meant to be radio journalism. And that's fine. I'm I'm destined to be this forever. But I failed at the writing dream, but it was breaking my heart. Anyway, so one morning, being that Triple J newsreader, I'd cannily put myself on the afternoon shift, which is when I started at 10 a.m. and I read the bulletins, you know, through lunch, the lunch hour and into the um, afternoon. One day, the regular newsreader, Liz Foskier, was off sick or something. So I was put on the early morning shift to read the news opposite mm-hmm. Helen and Mikey, who were two legendary radio presenters of the 1990s. Helen is an extra Helen Razor, an extraordinary writer herself. So basically, I was reading the news opposite these two larrikins and, you know, it was like 6am in the morning or something. And I got to the end of the bulletin and we threw to music and Helen just looked at me and she said, you don't want to do this, do you? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, this is in the space of like a three and a half minute song. And I said, no, no, I don't want to do this, Hel. And she said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a writer, but I've just written a novel and not even an agent will take it. And she said, oh, for God's sake, pull yourself together, woman. She said, I just had a book published by Jane Palfrey Manor. She was at Random House then under the vintage label, I think. I can't remember what Helen's nonfiction book was then that she just had published. But she said, send the manuscript to Jane Palfreyman. Tell her that I sent you. She might reject it, you know, whatever, but at least you've had a second opinion because second opinions are so important in this business. Absolutely. And so are champions, aren't they? Exactly. So I sent it off to Jane Palfreyman thinking, you know, it's awful, this manuscript, it's too indulgent, whatever. 24 hours later, I got a phone call from Jane Palfreyman saying, I don't think I've ever had a bigger thrill. It was like, don't show anyone else this manuscript. <laughs> Did she, she say said that? that? She said, don't you dare send it to the Vogel. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I am publishing this book. And she was... What good taste uh, she has. Well, it didn't. It's like what you said. It did make me realise what someone hates another person loves and you just have to find that champion and, and just getting one rejection I, I mean know. most writers get hundreds exactly don't they? exactly exactly so uh, I don't know what I was on basically but anyway Jane published my first three novels I think it was which was glorious and then I sold The Bridesmaid Bear in London and contractually I had to go with the Australian outpost of HarperCollins with that book it was all tied with territories and so I lost my Jane but I found you know another champion in Shona Martin at HarperCollins and so I can I just say Gemma I just want to say thank you to the amazing women who have guided nurtured, championed me throughout my writing career. You know, there's all the kind of talk about women, how we don't get on and we're bitchy and we're competitive and there's so much drama. If it wasn't for the women who've had my back over the past 35 years, I wouldn't be writing. I'd still be, probably not on Triple J, but I'd probably be on Radio National by now, you know, just I wouldn't be the writer that I have become because it's been women who've held me up high all through my career and I'm so grateful for that. You just spoke about Jane Palfreyman. Now tell us about Shona Martin and what she did for you and your work. Shona came from a journalism background as I did too because I ended up doing a cadetship at the ABC straight after university. So Shona had almost the outsider's eye within the publishing industry. She had worked for the Good Weekend magazine. She had started up HQ magazine here in Australia. She had an illustrious magazine newspaper career before she joined HarperCollins. So she brought this entirely fresh perspective to the whole thing too. And I must admit, for someone like me, who's basically when I took maternity leave from the BBC with my first child, my aim was to then somehow become a full-time writer and make a living, a career out of writing, which is so hard. And for me, the only way I've been able to survive financially is to keep on doing the journalism 
as well. And it's not necessarily something that I want to do and it eats away at my fiction space, but it basically it gives me a regular income, which is my column in the Weekend Australian magazine. It's the only regular income that I have. And Shona has been the most incredible guide throughout that career. I can remember when the Weekend Australian approached me. I don't think I should say this, but oh, what the heck. So they, they approached me to write the <laughs> column. And I remember sending off an email to my husband and to Shona and I slugged, I titled the email, Sleeping with the Enemy. And it was basically, <laughs> can I really do this? Should I be doing this? Is this the right move? What will it do to my novelist reputation? All the rest of it. And Shona took me out for coffee and she just said, just go for it. Because, you know, she'd been in the journalism world in the past. She was now immersed in publishing and fiction. She knew both sides of the equation. She knew how tough it is to make a living as a novelist. And she was like, you know, by writing time through your column commitments, buy time to um, be able to write your novels on the side of that. So it's worked. It's worked well. It's hard. I must admit, way back in the day, I did a creative writing MA and BA at UTS and under the wonderful Glenda Adams. You know, she was my supervisor. And she used to bring in these amazing writers to talk to us, Drusilla Majeska, Kate Grenville, Helen Garner. And I can remember when Helen Garner came in and spoke to us MA candidates, she just said, the hardest thing is to keep fiction and nonfiction in your head at the same time. And I've never forgotten that. And I think about that all the time because it's bloody hard. And I think it's why it has taken me 10 years to write The Ripping Tree. Coincidentally, my column at the Weekend Australian magazine is also 10 years old. And my youngest child Mm. is almost 10 years old. So (laughs) I've had all these competing forces, all this kind of energy pulling me in different directions. It somehow works. I'm tired, (laughs) but I've made it work. My fear had always been as a a fiction writer, I'm going to have to teach. And I know a lot of writers do, and they're magnificent and wonderful. And I admire their energy with being able to teach so much. I just couldn't do it, I don't think. It would be too many competing things for me. I want to jump to the Bridestrip Bear because it was such a huge literary moment throughout the world. For people who haven't read it, because again, people come to your work at different times, it was published anonymously and it was seen as an erotic classic almost immediately. And then Nikki was outed against her wishes. How do you feel about the way it all went down in hindsight? Oh, look, for years, I was furious with that book, stressed over that book, anxious. I got my first ever crippling migraine headache two days before that book was published in the UK. I can remember we were driving back from a family holiday in Cornwall and I was vomiting into a pillow on my lap because we couldn't stop. We were on the, the freeway, the motorway. And I've had those migraine headaches ever since. And it's been almost 20 years since that book was published. I lost control of that book and I'd never had that feeling before. It was my fourth novel, I think. But you kind of, you usually have control of your oeuvre, your literary reputation, who you are, how you present yourself to the world as a writer. I was suddenly accused in the most kind of malicious awful dark ways of being a fraud and whatever and also I suddenly had this label of erotic fiction attached to me when I'd I'd never intended that for that book for me it was very honest and very vulnerable and also you know poetry is always my tuning fork I wanted it to be beautiful writing so I was kind of stunned to suddenly have my whole reputation and my literary life kind of sidelined by this book, this complete interloper in a way, because I hadn't expected it to ever be attached to my name. It was never going to be on the list of Nikki Gemmell books. And now, you know, it is brazenly and (laughs) dominating. In a way, I've been trying, every book ever since, I've been trying to erase the legacy of Bride, particularly the last couple. And I feel like I'll be trying to do that for the rest of my life. 
But what is so great about your work is that it's always refreshing and different. You know, your novels are very different. There's something new and exploratory and curious and different about them. And I think Bright is part of that overall oeuvre, as you say. And it was. It was a huge moment. All around the world, people were talking about it. Yes, yes, yes. I was reluctantly asked to talk about it too. (laughs) I I will go back to... (laughs) Who outed you, Nikki? Who outed you? I don't even know. I will never know. There are various theories. Going back to how I talked about I used to write in the London Library, that little coterie of writers knew, and if it was one of them, I will never know. One of them was good friends with the journalist who outed me. But I almost can't, don't want to believe it was them because I'm still a very, very dear friend with that woman. I adore her. Did you ask the journalist? I did. And she denied it. So that's that. That You know, we've talked about it. Another theory was my agent, David Godwin, he had a very problematic staff member on staff at that time who he sacked soon after my outing. And that staff member tried to corrupt all the computers. So he might have done something that sabotaged something. Who knows? Another theory was that around that time, phone hacking in the UK was huge and agents like um, JK Rowling's agent, I mean, it's come out that he had been phone hacked during that time. So, you know, maybe... So much intrigue. I know. And as someone else said, Nikki, as soon as you walked through the offices of HarperCollins in London, you outed yourself people would have known it was you just by the fact that you walked in to meet your new editor. So who knows? Who knows? Mm. Well, that was fascinating. And also I was wondering because, as you were saying, 20 years has passed since The Bride Stripped Bear, what would be your advice to young writers or even yourself back then with all that experience under your belt? I'd love to say own it, just own a book like that that's so raw, so honest, so excruciatingly stripped bare, just have the courage to do it. But it's really hard and I don't think I can put that on any young woman writer. We're always trying to protect ourselves. I just had a new baby. I had a wonderful husband who I loved deeply. There was a real protective element there of I just wanted to protect people around me. I was in this little kind of nesting environment of it's just the three of us and I want to keep it like this, this lovely golden time of just me and my husband and my baby. I don't want anything to intrude on that. And I also think the egolessness of childbirth, go through everything with childbirth, you know, everyone sees all your bits, whatever. You suddenly shed your ego. So in a way, it was a prime time to write about the female body, female sexuality from a very raw and honest perspective. But it takes a lot of courage to do that with your name to it. And I didn't have the courage to do it. I was outed before the book was edited because it went to the Frankfurt Book Fair and that's where all the intrigue was stirred up. So then it came time to edit what I'd written in complete freedom. And I can remember the glorious editor, Courtney Hodell. I was living in Edinburgh at the time then and she flew up to Edinburgh and she sat across from me on my dining table And I can remember I was saying, oh, my God, I can't put this piece in it. It's so excruciatingly embarrassing. I don't want anyone to know this. They're going to just associate it with me. I can't bear it. And she was crying and she was saying, Nikki, you have to put it in. This is where the power of this book lies, the excruciating honesty. So we were both working with a red pencil. I was trying to get the red pencil through the lines. She was trying to get the red pencil (laughs) out of my hand. And in the end, she won. And I know in hindsight she was right. There are lines in there that are excruciatingly embarrassing to me still, but they're in there and they are where the power lies. And women, even men, people still talk about that book out of all my books, uh, you know, that it connected with them and that they remember it. So that is a good thing. Nikki, generally what's the process like for you, the editorial process? Oh, I love it. 
I love, love, love the to and fro with an editor. And maybe that stems back to my days of radio journalism. It is collaborative. You're in a newsroom. You've got other people all around you. You have to write to deadline. You have to hit your deadlines. You have to learn not to be precious about your work. Someone else is going to put their stamp on a whatever. I welcome a tough edit. I can remember with Cleve, my second novel, Jane Paulferman, she sent it out to a freelance editor and it came back and at the it was very light and very respectful. And I just felt this book can be better than that. I know it can be better. And I want someone really, really tough to help me make it better. So I sent it back to Jane and I just said, would it be okay if we can find someone who can give it a tougher edit because I know it needs it. Do you have a tough editor now? I have the most extraordinary editor, Catherine Milne at HarperCollins. You know, I bow to her eye, to her sensitivity, to her rigour. The Ripping Tree has gone through a lot of edits over many, many years. And part of that was, you know, both of us had to go dive back into it after working on other books and other things in our lives, all the rest of it. So I'd say I finished The Ripping Tree maybe like four years ago and since then we've had four years of back and forth with edits, with new versions. But Mm. I'm very used to working like that because my agent, David Godwin, he used to work at Cape. He's a former editor himself. And so his philosophy was always that I would send a manuscript off to him and then he would read it and then call me into his office and we would sit down and he would have notes, pages of notes. And, you know, some of them could be as big as the ending doesn't work or change the protagonist in some way or whatever. And I would go back and usually over about six months, I would then work through those edits that he has suggested because his philosophy has always been, you only get one shot at this. I can only send this manuscript to an editor once and if they reject it or or say it needs more work, I can't then go back and give it to them again when it's been reworked. And I think that was good advice. It must also be a really strong relationship of trust. Exactly, which is why I've had my agent for decades now because I really, really trust him and I trust his eye. And it's why I love having Catherine Milne work on my work because I feel like she's the best and I'm in such safe hands with her. But, you know, when I was saying with one of my earlier books, Cleave, I felt like I needed a tougher, stronger edit. I didn't quite trust the editorial eye with that one. So, Mm. yeah, I I would say in terms of authors and their editors, it's important finding the right person. If you don't feel they're right, then it's within your right to maybe ask for a second opinion. I've read one of the books and writers who made you want to do what you do was Michael Ondaatje with his Coming Through Slaughter, which I also think is one of the best books ever written. Now today, who are the writers who excite you? I loved Shuggy Bain. It's been a long time since I've found a writer's voice that excites me so much. He moved me. I loved the Scottish, the Glaswegian vernacular. I mean, Gemmel, my surname is from a little town called Paisley, which is just outside of Glasgow. So really rough little working class place. So there was something in that language that just drew me in. I find his writing incredibly exciting. Apart from that, I still love Michael and Dutchie, but his early stuff, and I will still go back to Coming Through Slaughter almost as a tuning fork for audacity. I love what he did with that book. It was a mixture of nonfiction, fiction, photography. It was moving. It took a real person's story and fictionalised it, but it was so brave. It was so out there. I feel like with my writing, I'm always thinking of the commercial interests as well. And in fact, with The Ripping Tree, it began much more experimentally. And over the years, over 10 years, I've basically gone, oh, bugger it. I don't want to alienate the reader with tricksiness, with experimenting with different voices. At one stage, it was a mixture of first and second tense and it just felt wrong, but I still want to write with the audacity that 
on Dutch he had in his early work, as I guess he was crossing over from being a poet to being a novelist. And one day I'll write that book, but my problem is I'm not sure that anyone will publish it. And in terms of other writers who excite me, Anne Carson, I always go back to her. There are very few writers who I like, I get excited about their new books when they come out. Deborah Levi is another one. Annie Erno, gosh, I'm I'm sorry, I can't stop now. These are the writers, there's very few of them, but when they have a new book, I get excited and it's like, oh, I have to get it. Last of all, in one of your books, you mentioned your writing mantra was once, (laughs) write as if you're dying. Do you still use that mantra or do you have another one now? No, oh, God, now it's just right when I can get the time. Right when I can extricate <laughs> myself from children and tech decks <sighs> on my desk. Um, <laughs> basically, uh, Write As If You're Dying was a great motivator when I was younger and that's what got me through writing like Shiver and Cleave and those kind of novels and there's kind of a galloping intensity to them. But now there's kind of a bitsiness to my work because I am literally just writing between school drop-offs and pick-up and soccer matches that I have to attend when I really just want to be tucked under a tree with my laptop, all the rest of it. I've become very used to writing in snatches. (laughs) (laughs) Nikki, thanks so much for our conversation today and for all of those books that you give us. And congratulations again on The Ripping Tree that's already been called an Australian classic in one review. And for everyone listening, make sure you race out and get a copy at your local independent bookshop. I'll put a link up to one of Nikki's favourite bookshops with the podcast information too. And if you haven't read Nikki's earlier books, I really recommend them. Thank you, Nikki. Oh, Gemma, look, thank you so much. It was just so wonderful talking to you. I feel like that was the best interview I've ever had because you were so informed and you took the time to just roam. And, yeah, look, thank you. Thank you. Oh, no, that's so lovely of you to say. I really appreciate it. It means a lot. (laughs) 